Well, even though we are more than a week into the new year, I do want to take this opportunity to just uh, wish you God's very best for 2022. Those of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you here at Central Campus, along with those who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland, South Calgary, and Bears Paw. We're continuing our study in the book of Romans. And so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles or your Bible app to chapter 4 of this life-changing book. In Romans 1.16, Paul makes this declaration. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the overall theme of the book of Romans. And in the first part of this book, the Apostle Paul uh, explains the gospel or how to become a friend of God. The gospel has both good news and bad news. And the bad news is, if, uh, is we all have a sin problem, which at its core is sin. In other words, we're all inclined to live our lives independent of God and to do what we want to do. In the same way that we're all capable of accumulating credit card debt, we're also capable of racking up some serious moral debt. And that is what Paul warns us about here in the first two chapters of Romans. Our moral debt, along with our pride and our defiant attitude toward God has separated us spiritually from God, leaving us spiritually dead and the object of God's wrath. Now make no mistake, our God loves us more than we can possibly imagine, but he hates sin, and his wrath is directed not at us, but at our sin, at our pride, because he knows our sin is destructive and will hurt not only us, but also others. Furthermore, because God is also holy and just, like any honest judge, he can't turn a blind eye to sin or injustice. Whether we tell a lie, whether we slander someone, or murder someone, we've committed a crime against God and against others, and God's justice demands that our sins be paid for. The problem is, even though many people attempt to do so by trying harder to be good, we can't do enough or be good enough to pay for our sin. I mean, for example, how can you possibly measure the impact of telling a lie about someone or to someone? And how do you make amends for the damage and the ripple effect of telling that lie? It's impossible. And that is our sin problem. Romans 3.23 says, we all have sinned. And Romans 6.23 uh, tells us that the wages or the cost of sin is death. In ourselves, we have no way of being freed of our sin or escaping the wrath of God. In ourselves, we have no hope of ever being made right with God again. And all of that bad news leads us to the good news. Romans 5.8 says, But God 
demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love those two words, but God. When there was no other way, God made a way by sending his only son, Jesus, to take our place and to pay for your sin and mine on the cross. Paul put it this way in Romans 3.23, which we looked at last time. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Jesus atoned for your sin and my sin, and through his sacrifice on our behalf on the cross, God's wrath and God's justice was satisfied. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ in the spiritual realm, our sins are transferred to uh, Christ's account, and Christ's perfect righteousness is transferred to our account, and we are declared guiltless and righteous, not because we are righteous and perfect in ourselves, but because now, by faith, we are in Christ, and he is righteous and perfect. Amen? Amen. And that, my friends, is a summary of the gospel and the first three chapters of Romans in three minutes flat. Which brings us now to chapter four. Now chapter four is an extension of chapter three, which is why I did this review a moment ago, in which Paul uses the life of Abraham now to illustrate what he taught in chapter three. See, some of the people who heard Paul's teaching on God's grace they simply didn't buy it. And so they peppered Paul with questions and objections about grace, which he addresses beginning in verse 3 and also now in chapter 3 and also now in chapter 4. So keep that in mind as we now read a portion of chapter 4 together. If you're able, would you please stand with me and join me in reading the first five verses of Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that you will help each person at this time to release the burdens, the worries, anything else that's weighing them down or distracting them, and that they would turn to you and just trust you with whatever it is that's on their mind. As we continue our study, I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that you'd focus our minds, and Lord, that you'd open our ears to hear and to receive what it is you want to say to us. Lord, for those who 
don't fully understand what this passage is really saying, may you instruct them by your spirit. For those of us who are all too familiar with your amazing grace, may your spirit, Lord, make it fresh and new again, I pray. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, based on his teaching and the illustrations that he uses here in chapter 4, Paul addresses three objections, which I believe could be stated this way. Objection number one. Grace doesn't align with the teaching of the Old Testament, and so it can't be true. Objection number two. Grace is too easy, and it's too unfair to be true. And thirdly, grace is too good to be true. So let's examine how Paul addresses these objections. Objection number one. Grace doesn't align with the teaching of the Old Testament, and so it can't be true. Well, Paul tackles that objection head on by saying in verse one, okay, how about we take a look at one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, your father Abraham, whom you revere greatly. Let's examine the scriptures and see how Abraham was justified in the eyes of God. Was he justified by his works or was he justified by faith? And in the first 15 verses of this chapter, Paul, like a trial lawyer, he makes a strong case that Abraham was not saved. He was not justified by doing good works, by being circumcised, or by keeping the law. So let me unpack each of those a little. First of all, Abraham was not saved or justified by his works. Paul writes this in verse 2 and 3. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul says, Abraham may have lived an exemplary godly life, but he did not live a perfect life. And therefore, even though he might be able to boast to others, he wouldn't be able to boast before God. Because as Romans 3.23 says, all, including Abraham, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now notice it says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. To credit means to make a deposit. It is to confer a status that was not there before. This is something that God initiated and something that God did. It was a gift. All Abraham could do was to receive it. It was his faith, not his works, that made him right with God. Paul strengthens his argument in verse 4 with another illustration. He writes, now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited 
as righteousness. Those of you who work at a place of employment, you work eight hours a day, perhaps 10 hours a day, and typically every two weeks or so, you receive a paycheck for your work. Now, do you consider that paycheck a gift? Of course not. It's wages for the work that you did. But now let's say that you spent too much during Christmas and you have a credit card debt of $2,000. And someone unexpectedly deposits $2,000 in your account that erases the debt on your credit card. Now that is a gift. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. And you probably didn't even deserve it. Paul's point is, if you receive money, it is either as a result of work that you've done or wages, or it's a gift. It has nothing to do with the work that you've done. In the same way, our righteousness before God is either merited by our good works, or it's a gift that is credited to us by God in response to our faith or our trust in him. And in the case of Abraham, writes Paul, he was not justified by his works, but by his faith in God alone. Secondly, says Paul, Abraham was also not justified by being circumcised. Look at verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of righteousness that, had, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying Abraham was justified by faith long before he was circumcised, 14 years before to be exact, which is clear evidence that from God's point of view, religious rituals like circumcision, though important within their intended purpose, do not save us. Take baptism as a modern example. Baptism is not something you do to be saved. Rather, being baptized is a step of obedience that shows you are saved that you have already put your faith in Christ. And so Abraham was not justified by being circumcised. And then thirdly, Paul says, neither was Abraham justified by keeping the law. 
Look at verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. You see, Abraham was justified 430 years before the law and the Ten Commandments were given by God to Moses. And therefore, obviously, Abraham could not have been justified by obeying the law because the law didn't even exist during his lifetime. Now, Abraham wasn't the only Old Testament patriarch to cast himself upon God's grace. Paul uses David as another example. Look at verse 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Despite all the good that King David had done for God and also for Israel. He was tormented by his many sins, including the sin of adultery and murder. And David knew that there was just no way he could pay or he could make up for what he had done. He knew all that he could do was to cast himself on God's mercy. Which is why in verse 6, David worships God for not being a God who credits righteousness on the basis of our behaviors, be they good behaviors or bad behaviors. Because if God judged us according to our behaviors, David would have no hope of being redeemed and set free from his sin and regrets. He's so grateful for God's forgiveness that his sins have been covered And that he is justified through his faith in God alone. And so Paul summarizes his argument in verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. So that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only those who are of the law or of Jewish descent but also those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. All those who have put their faith in God, he's the father of us all. And so through the illustration of Abraham and to a lesser extent David, Paul makes a strong case that grace is found not only in the New Testament, but it's also found throughout the Old Testament and that we are saved not by good works, not by exercising religious rituals or keeping the law. All these are important and have their place, but there is only one way we are acceptable to God, and that is by grace through faith in God alone. That's Paul's answer to objection number one, which brings us to objection number two. God's grace is unfair And it's too easy to be true. 
Now often, <clears throat> it is people with a religious spirit, sort of a legalistic spirit, who raise this objection to grace. Recently, I read the story of a woman who had lived a life that she deeply regretted. A life filled with sexual immorality, deception, and unfaithfulness, and an assortment of other sins. She came to the end of herself, and through the help of a couple of Christians, she came to understand the gospel, and with joy and thanksgiving, put her faith in Jesus and his gift of grace. The following week, she called up her sister, so excited to tell her about her newfound faith in Christ. Her sister responded, now, let me get this straight. These people told you that a person like you could do all the foolish and the immoral things that you have done all your life, and five minutes before you die, you can just repent and trust Jesus and be saved just like that? They told you that you don't have to live a really good life to go to heaven? She said, well, that's just offensive to me. It's too easy to be true, and frankly, it's unfair. I'll never believe that, and you shouldn't either. You see, her sister had a spirit of religion, of, of legalism, similar to that of the oldest son in the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told. She was convinced there was only one way, one fair way, to be saved. And that was to earn God's forgiveness and favor through right living and through good deeds. The idea that salvation could be something you just ask for in faith was offensive to her. It offended her pride and her sense of fairness. And you know what offends many of us as well, if we're honest? Despite the fact that Amazing Grace is probably people's most favored hymn today. Most are convinced that the only way to heaven comes through what we do. They can't accept the free gift of grace. They see it as completely unfair. As far as they're concerned, real religion, real salvation, comes only through the old-fashioned way, by earning it. You see, from the time that we are young, we're told that you don't get something worthwhile for nothing. There are no free rides. In fact, we're taught to be suspicious of anything or anyone that seems too good to be true. And some of you would have to admit, when you hear all this talk about grace and being saved by faith alone, you get really nervous. Because you're convinced that emphasizing grace will cause your child or a sibling, a parent or a close friend to lose their fear of God, to lose their respect for God, and to not take Christ's call to be his disciples seriously. Well, turn over to James chapter 2, verse 21 for a moment. James is talking about Abraham in this passage as well. This is what he says. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did 
when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see, that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, this sounds like a contradiction from what we've just learned from here in Romans 4, doesn't it? But it's really not. In the first place, James and Paul are talking about two different things. There's two different contexts here. Paul, here in Romans 4, he's talking about saving faith. Justification by faith. James is talking about growing in our faith. Paul's talking about the root of our salvation or how we're justified and how we become a friend of God. James is talking about the fruit of our salvation or the kind of life a person in the faith actually lives. Beginning here in Romans 4, verse 18, Paul talks about an event in Abraham's life when God promised him that he would bless him with a son and with many descendants and through one particular descendant, namely Jesus, the whole world would be blessed one day through him. However, because of his age and the age of Sarah, his wife, this was an impossibility biologically speaking. And yet the Bible says in Genesis 15, even though it seemed like an impossibility, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. So think about it. What did Abraham do to deserve this? Absolutely nothing. All he could do was put his trust in God, which he did. He was saved by faith in God alone. Now James, on the other hand, talks about an event that happened 35 years later in Genesis chapter 2 when God asked Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. No question, Abraham's faith was being tested here. But you see, that's just the point. Abraham had already been declared righteous by God long before this incident. The incident was simply a test of the faith that Abraham already had and an example of what true faith is. Abraham's outward act of obedience showed that his faith decision to trust in God was real and genuine. And so make no mistake, true faith is a faith that walks the talk, that practices what it preaches. True faith is like an apple tree with apples ready for the picking. Do those apples give life to that tree? Well, of course not. Those apples prove that the tree is alive. So yes, grace has a risky dimension to it. There's always the possibility that some people will abuse and cheapen God's grace and God's goodness. But remember this, 
God knows our heart. He knows if there truly has been a change of mind and a change of heart attitude within us. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, we read, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. God knows if we're playing games with him or not. If you come to Christ and you say, Lord, I, I want the grace that you offer. I want the free gift of eternal life that you offer. But I don't want to follow you as Lord. I don't want you telling me how to live my life. Well then, friend, you will receive from the Lord precisely nothing. Christ does not come into your life just because you ask him to. You need to deal with those things in your life that have kept him out of your life up until this point. You need to repent, which means you need to change your mind about your pride and your sin and your self-sufficiency. You need to turn around and you need to go the other way. You need to turn from your way and turn toward God's way. So please understand, someone who sees grace as permission to sin or to do whatever they want to do has misunderstood grace entirely. Christ followers who understand and have embraced his grace by faith want to please the Lord. They want to follow him and do what is right and good. Of course, they will fail at times. But when they do, they get right back up and they keep following the Lord in whom they love and trust. And so to be clear, it's your faith in God's grace that saves you, period. But it's your life and your actions that prove that your faith is real. And make no mistake, a faith like that is never easy or cheap. I want you to notice in verse 3, Paul writes, Abraham believed God. It doesn't say he believed in God. See, it's one thing to believe that God exists. It's quite another to actually believe God, to believe what he says, to trust God, and to put your total confidence in him. Abraham's belief wasn't a head thing. He literally believed God to the point that he put his entire family and his entire future at risk. And I point that out to those who think that grace is too easy and unfair to be true. The trust that Abraham put in the Lord was not flippant or easy. When he put his faith in God, he put everything precious to him on the line. He held everything with an open hand. And folks, all that to say, true grace is not too easy or too unfair to be true. Which brings us to the third and the final objection. Grace is too good to be true. You know, over the years, I've talked with hundreds of people who were convinced that they had sinned themselves outside of the grace of God. I'm thinking of a young woman who years ago shared with me 
her belief that God would never forgive her for having an abortion. I'm thinking of the, of, of the fellow who believed that he was beyond the grace of God because of sexual sin in his life and the devastation that it brought not only to his wife and his family, but many other women involved. I'm thinking of the person who confessed that they had told so many lies, they hardly even know what the truth is anymore. When I talk to people like this, what I keep hearing is, God may give grace to you. God may extend grace to someone else. But not me. Because my sin's too great. I've crossed too many lines. I'm wondering, is there anyone listening to me right now who has thoughts like that? Well, to those who feel this way, in verse 18 here in this chapter, Paul draws our attention to the story of Abraham and Sarah who also felt their situation was hopeless. Here's Abraham, now well in his 90s. Sarah, not much younger. Physically and sexually, they are as good as dead. And folks, I didn't say that. Just read verse 19, okay? That's where you'll find it. But they didn't give up hope. Look at verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. Everything was gone. No youth, no vigor. Everything hurt, and whatever didn't hurt didn't work. All Abraham and Sarah had was a promise from the Lord. But Abraham decided to trust the promise rather than focus on the problems and the obstacles. And friend... In the same way Abraham and Sarah looked at the reality of their physical situation and limitations, you're looking at the reality of your sinful past and you're saying it's impossible, it can't be fixed. You're feeling totally undeserving and unworthy, as David did, to receive anything from God. And frankly, from a human point of view, you're right. But you see, that's humanly speaking. That's not God speaking. Look at what God says through John in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of God, friends. And God stands behind his promises. The same God who came through on his promise and, and gave a child to Abraham and Sarah. This same God has promised grace to you and me. You know, Erwin Lutzer, he tells of a pamphlet that was published years ago by a group of atheists who were attempting to mock the Bible and the God of the Bible by poking fun at some of the key characters of the Bible. They said, consider Abraham. Here's a guy who lied to save his own neck. Because his wife was beautiful, he feared the Egyptians would have him murdered to get her. So, like a coward, he put her life and purity in jeopardy by telling the Egyptians she was his sister. And then with just a touch of sarcasm, 
They wrote underneath that, but he was called a friend of God. Another person they picked on was Jacob, referring to him as a cheater and listing a number of his other sins. But amazingly, they said, God changed Jacob's name and called him the Prince of God. And then there was Moses. They said, here is Moses, a lawbreaker, a murderer. And yet God uses him as the means by which the Ten Commandments are to be received, one of which clearly says, you shall not murder. And then with acid irony, they added, isn't that strange? And yet Moses talked face to face with God. And then, of course, the worst sketch of all was about David. They highlighted that David committed both adultery and murder. And then they wrote underneath it, however, he was a man after God's own heart. And the point of the piece was essentially this. What kind of God would be a friend? With a liar. With a coward. With a cheater. With a murderer. Or an adulterer. I'll tell you what kind of God would do that. The God of the Bible, the God of the second chance, the God of amazing grace is who? I ask you, which is the greater miracle? 80-year-old Sarah telling 90-year-old Abraham that he's a daddy? Or God calling you and me righteous by his grace in response to our faith in him. If you think about it, both are absurd. Both are too good to be true. But both are true because God declares it to be so. I love how Paul wraps up this chapter beginning verse 23. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Friends, this is the miracle and the power of God's grace. In the same way that God brought life to Sarah's dead womb and raised Jesus our Lord from the grave, so he will bring life to our dead soul by his grace. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and make us alive and a new creation in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? Just take a moment right now and ask the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me? And what are you asking me to do about it?
I just want to provide a couple of ways for you to respond to the truth that we've learned today from God's word. Some of you have not put your faith in Jesus and what he's accomplished for you on the cross. If you're feeling far from him, if you're feeling like you've blown things so badly that God could never forgive you, I just want to challenge you. Those of you who are here in person, those of you online or at one of our other campuses, I just want to challenge you to talk to God right now through prayer. Ask him to forgive you of your pride, of your sin. Give him all of your regrets. Ask him to come into your life to make you a new creation and to help you to be who he created you to be. Believing that what you have prayed and asked for, you have received from his gracious hand. And after you pray, I'm, I'm going to invite you just to step out and to make your way up here. And just spend a moment kneeling or standing here, thanking God for his grace and for making a way for you to be free from all of your sins and your regrets. Regrets that you likely have been lugging around for years like a heavy backpack that's full of bricks. And then symbolically, leave that heavy backpack of sin and regrets. Leave it at the altar. Turn around and leave it all behind. Forever. Free in Christ. As you go back to your seat. Those of you online, encourage you to reach out to the pastor online. One of the volunteers. Let them know of your decision. Now, for those of us who have embraced the grace and the forgiveness of God, I want to give you an opportunity to respond as well. You know, one concern I have is how many of us have lost the wonder of God's amazing grace. For how many of us has God's grace through Jesus Christ become old news? I mean, could that be one of the reasons that our eyes kind of glaze over when we hear yet another sermon on grace and we get a bit snarky and we say to ourselves, I already know all this. Could one of the reasons that we're so reluctant to talk to others about God's gift of grace or to share our story of how Jesus has transformed our lives with those who are far from God? Could it be because we're no longer amazed by God's grace ourselves? Friends, let me remind us that there are hundreds of millions of people in our world who are caught in religions that leave them wondering each and every day what their God is really like that leave them wondering every day whether they are acceptable to their God and what will happen to them after they die. They have no idea. Every day they struggle, trying to appease, trying to earn the favor of their God, faithfully doing all the required steps and rituals, praying all the required prayers, attending all the required religious services, and yet anxious and 
burdened with not knowing whether they've done enough. I don't know about you, but often when I see the joy of a person who has been set free from such a religion of legalism and works, or see the joy of a person who's been set free from sinful, destructive habits and addictions and radically changed by God's amazing grace, the miracle of God's grace performed in my life is rekindled again. I ask you, therefore, to reflect for a moment on where you would be today were it not for the wonderful grace of Jesus. We simply must never let it grow old or ordinary in our lives.